So far in the London Futurist podcast, we've covered the early history of AI up to the Big Bang in 2012, and we've made a heroic attempt to explain what machine learning is. We did omit to relate a couple of stories about Jeff Hinton, uh, perhaps the most prominent father of machine learning. He's a very interesting man. He's got an interesting family tree. One of his ancestors was George Bull, the inventor of a branch of, of mathematics, which is very important in, com- in computing. And I think it was his grandfather who was George Everest, who was Her Majesty's surveyor in the Himalayas, and after whom Mount Everest is named. Everest used to get quite cross that it was mispronounced, even though he never actually himself saw the mountain. And Jeff Hinton has a dry sense of humour. Quite a lot of people in AI have dry senses of humour. He was asked by one correspondent whether he preferred to be called Jeff or Jeffrey, and he emailed back, I prefer Jeffrey. Regards, Jeff. Due to an accident many years ago, Jeff Hinton can't sit down. He can stand up or he can lie down, which makes flying, among other things, very difficult. And when asked about this, he says, it's a long-standing problem. So, David, what are we going to talk about today? Well, I think some of these historical anecdotes are illuminating for all sorts of reasons. I'll point to the recent book by Cade Metz, who is a journalist who has discussed at some length the backgrounds and the visions and ideas of many people, such as Jeff Hinton, but about a dozen other people who were involved in what he calls the making of genius or genius makers. I like to look at these stories because they add a richer understanding of what's behind the scenes and they can help people therefore not fall into the traps of overly abstract analysis of the creation of technology. The creation of technology is very much a human thing and the control of technology, the guiding of technology is a human things as well. And I think what we need to talk about today is the current state of AI. After all, we've looked two episodes ago at the history of AI from the ancient Greeks till about 2012. In our most recent episode, we looked at from 2012 to the present day. But where are we today and what might we easily foresee in the next few years? Callum. So we, we all use AI numerous times every day. And perhaps more than anything, we use search. And search has had various iterations of AI to our greatest performance. I'm talking obviously mostly about Google search, although other search engines are available. Just yesterday, I was looking, uh, I needed to identify a tower, which is half built in Lyon. I won't explain why. And I just put my photo of that tower into Google search. And sure enough, it came up with uh, a, a set of towers. It didn't only produce the one, but it might, the, the one I was looking for was in it, even though this tower wasn't fully built. Obviously, AI um, now AI systems are now better at many games. In fact, pretty much every uh, game, uh, board game and computer game that's ever been invented and the prince of games, if you like, the most complex game that, that humans have invented is, is Go, and AI is much better than the best human at that. And something else I find miraculous all the time, because I 
um, he spent a lot of time in Spain and elsewhere in Europe, is translation. Uh, it's just astonishing how you can throw a chunk of text, cut and paste a chunk of text into translate, and it comes back with a serviceable, a serviceable rendering. There are still errors. Uh, gender is something that Google, this is the one I use, um, trips up a, a lot on. Because, of course, English doesn't have genders for nouns, uh, whereas the European languages do. Maps, I also find amazing. You know, I, I remember the bad old days when you used to have to figure out by hand what the best route from A to B was, and you really were just taking potluck when you're trying to guess how long a journey would take. And now Google does it for you in a fraction of a second and tells you to the minute how long a multiple hour journey is going to take. Again, pretty miraculous stuff. I was relying on Google Maps yesterday. I was en route from my home in Surbiton, southwest London, to visit family in Cambridge. Various roads were quite blocked. And then Google Maps kindly said, if you come off this exit and go through these other roads and via these roundabouts, you can rejoin the motorway up here and you will save seven minutes. For which I was grateful because we were already a little behind schedule. So it has real-time knowledge and it's able to see lots of possibilities. It took me to villages and hamlets I had no idea existed. In the olden days, I couldn't have done that. Certainly not in real time. Google likes to say that their mission in life is, well, one of their missions is to make the world understandable. That's what AI does. It makes the world understandable. I think that's a really useful shorthand. I think what's really interesting is that these systems we're talking about, Google Search, Google Translation, Maps, and as you said, there are multiple providers of such services, they're by no means static. All the time they are being enhanced as behind the scenes, different AI technologies, different innovations in deep learning are being deployed. So seamlessly they are improving. And nowadays when you just type a couple of words into the search engine, it knows a bit about our history. It knows the kinds of things we've been looking at most recently, and it comes up with a list of possible hits. And it pays attention to which of these links we click on so that next time that link, when it's offered to similar sort of people as us, will be positioned higher in the link. So it's learning dynamically at the same time it's adapting its models. That brings us on, I think, to the next topic, which is the way that some of the models are rapidly improving. We should talk, I think, about the improvements in modeling of text and the way in which software is also able now to analyze pictures, not only the reverse image search that you talked about, Callum, but is able to generate pictures and modify pictures based on text inputs. And a lot of this is to do with an enhancement called transformers. And I think the phrase is not love is all you need, but attention is all you need. And what this means is that the software has trained itself by figuring out the connections between different words, typically in sentences. So if I said a word at random, like cricket, it's not clear whether I'm referring to the game or to an animal. If I said a word like pitch, there's even more meanings. But another phrase that's sometimes said is we know words by the company they keep. It's important to see the context and what these models, sometimes called foundation models, have done is they've acquired the ability to see words in their context. They train themselves by 
going through billions of exercises in looking at text, covering up some words and trying to guess from the context which word is obscured. This is called masked, masked language model. And in this way, it's developed the ability to understand text much more fully than before. So we've seen, first of all, GPT-2, which was impressive in terms of its ability to conduct some conversations. And then the team fed in larger sets of data and the resulting GPT-3 was even more impressive. Of course, it gets a lot of things wrong. Sometimes it talks not to gibberish because it, what it says all makes sense from a certain point of view, but it doesn't always follow from the prompts. However, in an increasing number of times, the sense is larger so that some people have even thought, hey, it really does understand what we're talking about. Yes, uh, GPT-3 was famous for having, I think it was 1.7 billion parameters. Have I got that number right or is it 17 billion? And a parameter, I understand, is analogous to a synapse. So a synapse is where um, the connections between neurons in our brains meet and a parameter is, is analogous to that. And it's been pointed out that... Uh, humans have about a thousand times as many synapses in their brain as GPT-3 has parameters. Now, these things do not scale directly. You can't simply say that once a, um, a machine has the same number of neuron analogs as a human brain has, that the machine will be as smart as a human. But it's interesting to compare them. And with uh, the power of exponential growth, a thousand times increase, increase uh, doesn't take all that long. And GPT-3, which was absolutely groundbreaking a couple of years ago when it came out, is now just one of many of these um, large language uh, programs or foundation models, as you say. And a lot of the content on the internet is now being produced by them. Lots of marketing agencies are churning out huge amounts of content for all sorts of companies and organizations using these models. We should talk a bit about how these different models differ amongst themselves. You've talked about one aspect, which is the number of parameters or the number of neurons. Research recently has suggested that the most significant thing isn't just the number of parameters, but the size of the data that's fed in. So the more books, the more Reddit forum posts, the more of Wikipedia, the more of any kind of language that can be fed in, it seems that results in better ability for the models to engage in meaningful conversation with users, better ability to summarize text, better ability indeed to do the translation from one language to another. So there's the number of parameters, there's the amount of data, and then there are tweaks to the software. The different models have different ways in which they operate with each other. And one significant difference is the ability to fine-tune one model, which has been trained for one task, to do a different task. Historically, and here I'm going back only 10 years or so, or even five years, there was a lot of criticism of these deep learning models, that they were too brutal, that a system that was very good at doing one task would fail catastrophically if it was asked to do something else. Whereas we humans, we quite quickly adapt knowledge from one context into another. 
If we learn how to drive one make of car with one layout of controls, and then we are placed into a different car, we have to think, oh, the wiper switch is in a different place, oh, it's got a different mechanism for changing gears, but we're fairly quickly able to transfer the learning from one system to another. Well, these new models based on transformers, based on some other cleverness, have the ability to quickly fine-tune from one task to another and that gives them their particular strength. After all, if we talk a little bit more about the ability of software to summarize data, imagine if it was just given a million summaries. Here's the text, here's the summary, here's the text, here's the summary. It's going to take a very long time before that software is able to summarize accurately a completely new piece of text. But the modern summarization softwares, they use at their basis a foundation model which already has a very rich understanding of language and how words tend to fit together. And on that basis, if it is subsequently shown a small number of summaries, it's then able to say, ah, I know what's going on here. So it relies on its deep knowledge in the foundation model plus the fine tuning. And that's part of what's making this field accelerate so surprisingly and so rapidly. Now, you've just fallen into a trap, which I know that um, uh, you're not normally guilty of, and talking about these things as, as understanding and thinking to themselves that, oh, yes, I know this, that, or the other. These systems have no understanding, they have no consciousness, and they don't, they don't know anything in the way that we do. Um, they are just statistical analysis processes. Um, but, of course, uh, that's not very far from what a lot of our brains are doing a lot of what our brains are doing all, all the time. Um, so we need to be careful about, at least we need, to be, we need to be sure we understand that when we say things, when we say AI systems are understanding something, it's understanding it in that very narrow sense, not in the way that we understand. But as you said, much of our own human understanding is similarly superficial. There's a famous article by a number of researchers talking about stochastic parrots or the dangers of stochastic parrots. After all, a parrot is able to parrot or mimic what the bird hears from human conversations in its midst without probably having a deep understanding of the phrases it utters. But many humans operate like that to an extent. I'm watching my grandson learn how to speak, and he repeats often what's said to him, and surely not understanding the whole significance of what he hears. So there is an element of a repetition of forming new sentences without deeply understanding them along with something else that we haven't quite yet understood in how humans comprehend but with that proviso i say that at a certain level the system has a deeper set of connections understands a deeper set of connections between language which crudely and with quotation marks we can say has an understanding of language and that is then taken advantage of by particular tools such as the summarization tool, the sentiment analysis tools, and so on. Yeah. And a couple of the applications that these systems have, uh, which are changing, gradually changing a great deal about the way companies and organizations work, are chatbots and automation. And we should talk about that for a while. So chatbots have become really quite good it's not unusual now to go onto uh, the website of, a, say, a large utility company and to click on the button to speak to an, an 
inverted commas assistant and ask it a question. Uh, it asks you for, more, for, for some more uh, specification of what you're after. Uh, you give it some more information, then it comes back with an answer. It often fails, but it often succeeds. And a few years ago, that just couldn't happen. And that's because they're using large AI systems. And these chatbots are very interesting and very helpful, but they can also be trained to become quite monstrous. And very famously, Microsoft uploaded a chatbot called Tay on, onto the internet a couple of years ago. And within 24 hours, um, humans had trained this machine to become a misogynistic fascist and Microsoft red-faced took it down. And that wasn't the first experiment. It won't be the last. And Facebook puts up a new chatbot like this every year. The latest one, BlenderBot3. I think that's named after a cartoon character from Farscape. And within a few, uh, a few hours, it was answering questions about Mark Zuckerberg, which weren't very complimentary to uh, Zuckerberg. Interestingly, Facebook didn't take it down. I was quite impressed by that. It's really important, though, that we understand that we are nowhere near artificial general intelligence. These chatbots are not conscious. Um, they are intelligent, uh, but they're not, they're not AGIs. They're not anywhere near human level. Uh, there was the famous case of Lambda, <coughs> a, a chatbot built by Google, and a Google engineer said it was sentient, said it was conscious, and was frustrated that the company wouldn't accept his arguments. And so he posted a conversation he'd had with this machine online. And I got a lot of other people saying, wow, yes, this thing really is impressive. It really does look uh, as if it's as if it's alive, as if it's thinking and feeling. It, it, it replied to questions like, are you conscious? With, yes, I am conscious, and I would be upset if anybody turned me off. Um, Google wasn't best pleased by him short-circuiting their processes, and they sacked him. And pretty much everybody in the AI space has said this thing is nowhere near conscious. So we're not at AGI yet, but chatbots are quite impressive. One thing here is our human tendency to anthropomorphize or to project into inanimate objects some of the characteristics of sentience and volition. If we see something behaving in a certain way, we're often subconsciously inclined to give it the benefit of the doubt and say, ah, there's agency there. Psychologists or evolutionary psychologists have talked about a hyperactive agency detection system. You know, it was quite useful in evolutionary times. If there was a rustling in the grass, those who were more inclined to say, say that could be a, a live predator about to kill me, they tended to survive. Whereas those who tended to think, oh, that's just the wind. There's nothing animate there. They got eaten and didn't, didn't pass on their genes to their successors. So we do have this tendency to project into inanimate objects characteristics which aren't actually there. Young children imagine feelings in their toys. We fall in love with uh, soap opera characters that don't actually exist in the real world. And so what this episode teaches us in part is the dangers of applying folk psychology or simplistic understanding to these all, all, all that, all, all that being said, I have definitely owned motorcycles which had minds of their own. No question. 
And as well as chatbots, um, the other uh, very interesting application, uh, one of the other very interesting applications is automation. Automation is the process of removing humans from a workflow. And it's been with us for a very long time. Uh, didn't start with AI, that's for certain. But AI is accelerating it and is going to accelerate it. And we'll definitely come back to this when we talk about uh, the future, possible future of joblessness. The state of the art at the moment is robotic process automation, which are software agents which, you, which a company can download to perform a particular task. And there are thousands probably by now, millions of these things. Most of them are not intelligent in that they don't learn <clears throat> as they carry out their functions, but increasingly they are, there are some intelligent ones. And that is going to accelerate the automation process throughout industry. I also like to... I'm also very interested in the improvements in the scientific process, which can be obtained from these deep learning models. So let's talk for a moment about drug discovery. One of the challenges of the present time is the growth of antibiotic resistance. We've had bugs. We've had the miracles of antibiotics, such as penicillin, which have saved hundreds of millions, billions of lives probably. But due to evolutionary pressures, occasionally bugs evolve in ways which mean that the antibiotics are no longer good enough to treat them. And this is a real risk. We could have infection spreading, which we can no longer deal with. So scientists are very interested in how to come up with new drugs that will squash these resistant infections. And a team managed, a team at MIT managed to apply deep learning methods to come up with a drug which actually has impressive new antibiotic characteristics. And it's a bit like the system that was discussed in our previous episode, in that you train a deep learning model. You train a deep learning model by feeding it lots of examples. This is a cat. This is a dog. This is a cat. This is a dog. And adjusting the parameters until the system itself is able to predict in advance whether the picture it's being seen is a cat or a dog. Well, in this case, lots of drugs were fed in to a deep neural network, and they had to be able to work out whether these drugs were good antibiotics or whether they weren't. And once it had been trained, it was then tested on a whole bunch of characteristics of new drugs drugs, I call them new drugs, they weren't yet known for their antibiotic properties, but they'd been developed for other purposes, including preliminary tests against cancer or diabetes or all kinds of other diseases. And surprisingly, a number of these drugs were picked out by the system as likely to have good antibiotic properties as well. And the system was especially asked to look for molecules which weren't obviously just derivatives or copies of known antibiotics. And so it came up with one. Actually, it came up with a number, and then real-life tests were carried out, first in test tubes and then in animals, mice. And uh, one of them has subsequently been called Hallison. I think the HAL is a reference to the computer in 2001. And it is very encouraging. It's not suitable for... 100% of infections, but it is suitable for a large number. So that's the start of what may be possible here. And there are companies which are now testing in human patients, 
drugs which have been discovered entirely by AI. Ex Scientifica and in silico are a couple of the leaders using neural network technology. In silico, for instance, has a three-stage process. In the first stage, which a platform it calls Pandaomics, it reviews medical literature. Uh, there's a vast amount of inf- information is published about uh, diseases and the proteins which may be causing the diseases. And Pandaromics trawls through these millions of documents in databases to look for a potential target, <clears throat> look for a potential uh, villain at the heart of a disease. Then the second platform is called Chemistry 42, and that in silicon experiments with many, many types of molecules which might interact favorably with the protein. And then what they're working on is the third platform, which is called InClinico, which is simulating tests of that molecule in practice. And as I say, they now have drugs which are in human trials. And they claim that this process has taken them 18 months and around about a million, around about a million dollars, whereas typically a new drug costs uh, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars and takes 10 years or so. And of course, many, most of them fail. So AI-powered drug discovery is going to revolutionize pharmaceuticals, um, as well as obviously every other industry. There's something which people in the pharmaceutical industry called Irum's Law. And who is Irum? Well, it's Moore spelt backwards. Whereas Moore's Law talks about the improving pace of computing power performance, Irum's law looks from the 1950s at how much it has cost to develop brand new drugs. And sadly, that's our opposite trend. It takes more money, a lot more money, and it's been doubling on a time period that I can't remember, but it's over a number of decades, it's got more and more expensive. And in part, it's because some of the easiest drugs have already been found. In part, there's more testing required nowadays than before. People are more rigorous. And there are other reasons which people have explored. As a result, it's taking longer and longer and costing more money. But if more of the tests can be done in silico, in software, in virtual worlds, then there is a real potential to reverse that trend. And of course, we can't talk about this without mentioning the DeepMind system AlphaFold, which has worked out how proteins... uh, fold and unfold. Proteins are the basis of of cellular life and the way that they fold, they're quite complicated molecules of of amino acids, long chains of amino acids, the way they fold and unfold determines how they operate and uh, AlphaFold achieved a a massive breakthrough in, in science by working out how many of the proteins in um, cellular biology work and it recently made another breakthrough when it worked that out for about 200 million proteins which is almost all the proteins uh, known to modern biology and they've made that free online and Demis Asabe, CEO of of, uh, DeepMind, which created AlphaFold, says that he thinks pretty much every biologist in the world is using this in, in their work now. So that's a, a major development. And so, yes, it does seem very likely that AI can 
reverse e-rooms law, at least a one-off major reversal and perhaps um, have the process going in reverse permanently. This is really a big thing, alpha fold. The problem of protein folding has something that's been challenging scientists for at least 50 years. And these molecules are very complicated. They are prone to do things which are not easily predicted. But with the knowledge that was built into this, there was a bit of explicit programming as well as the statistical modeling. It's achieved this uh, breakthrough. And we can look ahead to what's likely to happen next, which is not only models for proteins, but models of the interaction of all the proteins and other chemicals that make up a cell. So we can look forward to having an extremely accurate model of different biological cells. The more accurate the model is, the more confident we can be that we can understand what will happen when different drugs are introduced to that cell. And what will happen not just in the short term, but in the long term. Of course, there will still be real world in vitro and then in vivo tests in both cases. But the prospects of having a virtual cell and then maybe even virtual organs, even larger models, is compelling in terms of coming up with new, uh, much more powerful medical interventions. And we talked about chatbots and automation as being two of the big drivers or the big changes that, that AI is introducing to uh, companies and organizations. And the third one is analysis and uh, what we've been talking about in, in drug discovery uses a great deal of analysis. This is going to affect every industry. Um, one of the leaders of, of AI development, Andrew Ring, talks about um, AI being like electricity and that it will transform every sector and there's no sector that will be left untouched by it. A any activity that an organization does can be enhanced if you analyze uh, the data that it has and acquire more data and analyze that better. And an example I came across recently was that air traffic controllers reckon that they use about 10% of the data that they gather. The other 90% is just, just not used. So if you have machines running through that other 90% of the data, they can figure out how better, uh, how, how to improve their workflows, how to improve their routing of planes and so on. And that's replicated right across industry. We're going to see in the next couple of decades a massive improvement in the efficiency of all industries thanks to AI. Now, some people are worried that this means more and more computing power will be used up. They already complain that it takes a rather large amount of memory to train a new model, and that's correct. But again, this is where the significance of foundation models needs to be understood. Once the huge effort has been put in to train a foundation model, then subsequent fine-tuning can take place with much less energy input. So I think this is an important change too. It's not just that we're going to have models that are more powerful, we will have models that can be developed for much less input energy. And um, yet again, we haven't got quite as far as I thought we might, uh, but I think we've done a pretty good job of, of describing where the state of the art in, in AI is today. I think perhaps in the next episode, we should talk about the next, the, the short term future, the next decade or two. There's lots to talk about. Just to highlight a couple of points, improvements in artificial emotional intelligence, effective computing, progress in self-driving cars, 
applying AI even to generate nuclear fusion power in a controllable and sustainable way. There's lots more as well. It's not hard to see why we find all this very exciting. And listeners, I hope you are finding this exciting too. We look forward to welcoming you back into our next episode. Bye for now. Goodbye.